morning. Gra grab a, a chair and make yourself comfortable. It's good to see you. Hope you're having a good morning. If you have a Bible or an app you're using, we're going to be in Romans 8 today. We're going to be in Romans 5 a little bit, but Romans 8 will be a good place for you to be. Um, as Charlie said, I am always sad to see a series end and excited to see a new one start. We are going to bookend our work on reclaiming families today. And we've covered a lot of ground since Easter. It was right after Easter that we started this. And today I want to just finish on how you and I can see hope arise in our families, how we can guard and protect hope whenever our family is far from what we hoped it would be. Now that might be the family that you're trying to build, it might be your family of origin, but at some point where you look at your family now and you say, this isn't exactly what I was hoping for, it's not as functional, as healthy, it's not what I dreamed for, it's a little bit different than what I have in hand. How do we have hope when things are far from where we think they ought to be? And listen, as a dad and a husband and a son, I have... As a, as a man who has buried parents and grandparents, as a guy who has a, a kid who's in college, a kid who's in high school, even a, a younger child, as a guy who's been married for over 20 years now, I have fought and reconciled, I have struggled, I have cried, I have laughed, I've had all of these things happen and I can attest that it is not like the movies, this thing called family. It's not like a sitcom where after 41 minutes, everything comes cruising into this resolution where everything is just as happy as when it began. Sometimes, maybe you're like me, where we stand back and we say, is this as good as it's going to get? Like, is this what I have to look forward to? Right? It's kind of broken, maybe a little bit messy. And these key areas, is, just, is this the way it's going to be? Is this what I'm supposed to look forward to? Can this mess even be redeemed? Is it redeemable? Does God see this? Does God care about this? I think when we do what we've been doing the last several weeks, as Charlie said, and cruising through these, these moments on how to reclaim our family, it's going to be real easy for us to see this lofty ideal of what our family should be and then kind of get in the car and look at what we really have, the reality, the state of the union, and get really discouraged, which is why some sermon series like this can be kind of painful, can be very difficult. Like I said a couple weeks ago, family can be a terrifying word for some people, not, not a warm word. And whenever we see something broken down in front of us, like our family, a lot of times we don't know if hope is even something that we should have looking forward. Kind of like whenever you see that, the, the toddler or the adolescent take blocks and build a tower and then they always, you know, bump it on accident or somebody else bumps it and it comes crashing down. You can just see the look on their face. You know what they're thinking. They're thinking, man, I put a lot of time into that. Man, I, how do I rebuild it? And then, they, then you can see the wheels turn. Should I rebuild it? No. Nah. And then just leave the mess and they go watch cartoons, right? That's what happens in the toddler's mind. That's what happens to us as well. We do the same thing. We work hard on this thing called family. We get despondent when it doesn't look like what we wanted it to look like as it falls apart, especially when we're looking across the green lawn and the picket fence and we see everybody else's family and we think that theirs is so much better than ours. We get distracted, we lose hope, we leave the mess, and we go and distract ourselves as well. Listen, whether it's the family you're trying to build or whether it's your family of origin, it's likely that when you walked in here, not everything was healthy. Everything was far from perfect. Something 
There's a mess. It's not been redeemed. You're looking at it. You wonder if it can be redeemed. You wonder if that's something you should be praying for, waiting for, hoping for. This is the big question I want you to have before you put it on your dashboard as we move through this passage is how do we protect the hope of the promise that God is thoughtful for us in our mess? Attentive, invested, active. How do we hope for that? And is it wrong to despair? When hopelessness finds us, is that a sin? Is it a sin to be in despair? Let's look at Romans 8. This is Paul's going to be very helpful. He wrote the book of Romans. And this is a passage that's, I mean, it's an epic book. It's just an epic chapter within an epic book. And we're not going to exposit or draw out the entire thing. We're going to jump right into verse 23 and read just a, a few verses. And Paul says this, And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He's just saying, just like creation is broken, we're broken. And inwardly, we're just groaning and we're waiting for everything to be made perfect. We're waiting for justification to come. We're waiting for glorification to come. We're, we're waiting to have these renewed bodies in this renewed place. That's what he's saying. For in this we hope. We, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, a couple big points here, right? There's a lot going on in that passage. The couple big ones I'd like to draw out is that when we are hopeless and weak and we can't even rub two thoughts together, we can't even put words together, the Spirit of God is very kind finds us, searches us, knows us, and intercedes for us. He's mediating. He's intervening for us. He's translating our gut emotions because, as I said, we can't even put words together. You've been there where you feel something, a certain emotion, you couldn't even name the emotion. You want to pray, you don't even know what to say. It's just an inward groan. It's the slant of our soul. The Spirit knows what we are trying to say better than well, we know. The Spirit knows how we feel more accurately than we know how we feel, which is hard to, to consider whenever you think about it. That's one thing that he is saying. He searches our hearts. He knows us better than we do. He intercedes in a timely moment when we need it most. Second thing that he is saying here is, and for those who love God and are called by God. So another way to say that is if you love God and are loved by God. If that's you, then all things work together for good. Difficult passage right there. All things. All things work together for good. It does not say that all things that happen are good. It does not say that. I've seen people get hit with tragedy and force this unnatural smile. They grit it together because in some way they think that that's what makes God happy. When something tragic, a nightmare has visited them. And they're like, hey, no, it's all good. It's all good. I'm glad that that happened to me. They don't understand that that is not a good thing. 
right? It's not. This is where I think they get some of that too. I'm going to flip back one page. You don't have to. In Romans 5, you could stay where you're at. In verse 3, same guy says to the same people, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This does not mean that sufferings are the object of our celebration. The object of our celebration is God himself. It's just that we're celebrating him in the midst of our tragedy and suffering, right? It'd be weird to celebrate the suffering in and of itself. The object of rejoicing is in God. Our joy is not in the mess. Our joy is in the king that presides over the mess, that is watchful and thoughtful for us in the mess. That's where our joy is. So we don't cheerlead things like genocide and cancer and COVID and divorce and miscarriage. We don't cheerlead these things. But we do take joy in God while we weather those things. As, as the Bible says, he pours his Holy Spirit into us. He pours his Holy Spirit into us. And because he pours his Spirit into us, we become his kids, his family. And he draws us forward to this land of redemption, this place, this place called forevermore, where all sad things become trivial and untrue, where glory resides, the end of all ends, however you want to say it. He pulls us there. He draws us there. He redeems what's broken. So what Paul is not trying to do is to get you to relabel your nightmares as something not nightmarish. He's not doing that. He is saying that when bad things happen, God is attentive. When bad things happen, and they do, God is thoughtful. He's present. He is strong. He is considerate. He is invested. He is watchful. And he brings us through it. Maybe not without a limp, but definitely not without hope. And then in some way, according to his brilliance and his creativity and his, as Charlie said, his sovereign care, we end up at this place called good. That's what he says. Good. All things work together for good. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. But the hope that God is active and attentive and thoughtful for you and me, that's a hope that he says does not put us to shame, won't let us down. That's a hope that's well invested. It's a hope you can hang your hat on. Right? You see, in our family disasters, what we're going to do is we're going to take a passage like that and we're going to overlay it on top of our family disasters, our messes, our dysfunctions, right? We know that God is good and he is active, and the Bible is incredibly clear on this. You can ask Job. Ask Jacob and Joseph and Abraham. Ask Moses and Noah. God is knee-deep in our family messes, very intimately there. And he works in us as we hope, look forward, and wait for redemption, right? And what we do with redemption is that's where we place our anchor, our hope. It's in what God is bringing us towards. It's in what God is preparing for us, what he's protecting for us, what is reserved for his people. And we hope for it even though we can't see it. I'll be honest, we can't even imagine it, can we? We try and we come up short. I try to imagine a place where sin hasn't touched it yet. Where colors and sounds and, and everything is different. I can't even imagine it. We can't see it. We can't taste it. But we trust that it is before us. 
we know it's in front of us. We know that that's where we are headed. And one day all of this is going to pass, which is why he says in Romans 8, 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, you can translate that, the messes in your family. So I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the messes, the dysfunction that I'm struggling through now is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's the place that we put our hope. But in this world, in the here and now, today, in 2021, despair is going to tempt us. Hopelessness is going to be very tempting as we come face to face with the reality of what we really have. The trouble that we're really going through. Things are not as we had hoped. Things are not what we would like them to be. Your kids might go astray. They might go wayward. Miscarriages happen. Intimacy does not always grow. You might have silence in your family. Damage from abuse. Damage from addictions. Unmet expectations. Unexpected infertility. Financial implosion. Sickness, a parent's death, it goes on and on and on. We don't need Paul to tell us that things aren't good. We know things aren't good. We bump into it all the time. We're tripping over it all the time. These nightmares are so far from what we had hoped for. What should be is so far from what is. And we are tempted to lose hope. That's what I need you to hear today. Losing hope is dangerous. Despair is dangerous. Living as someone who is hopeless, abiding in despair, that's a life of unbelief. It's a life that says God is not who he says he is. He might be lying. His, his gums might be flapping. But he's not who he says he is. Because what it does is it tempts us. Despair whispers when you see the dysfunction in your life. And it says, hey, listen, there's no hope here. Nothing's really going to change. Come on, how many times have you hoped for this to change just to see it not change? All is broken. Your best hope is placed in yourself or the things of this world. That's where you need to put your hope. Don't bother hoping in God. He's not here. He can't hear you. If he could hear you, he obviously doesn't care about you. He cares about other people. He's busy helping them. You're on your own. God is a liar. Now listen, it's a temptation when we hear that. It becomes a sin when we believe it. It's a temptation when we hear those whispers. It becomes a sin when we live in it and accuse God. You know, as we say all the time, behind every sin is an unbelief about God. Every sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, whatever you want to call a sin in your life, that sin is because behind it and behind the thing that's behind it, you're ultimately accusing God for not being who he advertises himself to be. He's obviously not glorious. He's not good. He's not great. He's not gracious. He's not strong. He's not thoughtful. He's not present. He's not, he's not something, and so you do something, or and so you don't do something. It's just a statement. Our sin is a statement that we don't believe God is who he says he is. Some of us are here. Today, when it comes to family, right? Despair is a home. It's a place you live. Hopelessness is a constant. You despair. Something's wrong with Junior. 
the marriage is not working out like you wanted it to, or your folks don't talk to you, or whatever it is. It could be a billion different things, right? But you've abandoned hope that God is God. You know, I don't know if you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress. It's an old, it's from the 1600s. John Bunyan wrote it. Someone told me it was like the first Christian fiction work. Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter. It's super old, right? I mean, it's over 400 years old. Um, but he wrote this as an allegory of types about a key figure whose name is Christian, not super creative, right, because he's a Christian, it's an allegory, but he moves and journeys through this book to what's called the celestial city. And in the process, him and another person called Hopeful, Christian and Hopeful, (laughs) were imprisoned in a dungeon, a dungeon that belonged to a giant, a giant's dungeon, the giant's name was Despair. In the story, we'll talk about how this giant named Despair would tell them that, hey, listen, things aren't going to get any better for you. Things are just going to get much worse for you. You should go ahead and kill yourself. The best hope you have is to end it all for you. And so they began to pray that night, Christian and hopeful. Just like we read in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas as they're in jail. They pray. And just like in the Bible, they they are free. They escape. This is what it says in Pilgrim's Progress. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in this passionate speech. What a fool am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that I am persuaded open any lock in this doubting castle. He had escape in his heart the whole time. It was the promises of God, that God is who he says he is. God is a promise maker, and that God is a promise keeper. That his God was a a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. An establisher of plans and one who executes and follows those plans. We wander through and live in the same doubting castle, don't we? When we have the same key of promise in our bosoms. The promise that we have, even in the passage that we're looking at today, is that all things work together for good for his family. I can't say it enough. All things, all things work together for good. We have a promise that in our mess, God is thoughtful. He's active. He's invested in what's going on. He's active to enter into our mess when it's messiest. Is that not what the incarnation is? Think about what the incarnation is, is Jesus, God in his purity, enters the mess of mankind. He's very good at doing this, at building bridges from perfection to mess and for redeeming it. And he works for good. Even if we can't see good, we all have an idea of what good needs to be, right? We have an idea of what good is, especially in our, in our messes. Well, Lord, I could help you out. I could tell you what good is. If all things work out to good, good for me equals fill in the blank. It equals a better marriage. It equals compliant children. It equals restoration with my parents. It equals something. We, we, we are so quick to label what good ought to be in this. But we're not promised it's going to look a certain way. We don't know what good is in the middle of our mess. Sometimes you're never going to know. Sometimes you'll never see it. That's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us. I was talking to a class. We had a class this morning, spiritual disciplines class, and we mentioned this, just talked about it a little bit. This is hard for us because we like to think in narrative form. We think in story form, right? 
That's how you think of your life. You're the central character in your story. That's just how we, that's, that's how we receive stories. That's how we enjoy movies. That's how we write songs. Everything is in story or narrative form. And what we really want is resolution to all the conflict in our dramas. We want, by the end of our episode, for things to be tied off and nice. Everything to be perfect. But life is not a sitcom for us, is it? It's not a movie for us. So you might not ever see closure to some of the story points in your story. You might not ever see it. But you are free to trust God with the overall plot line of your story. You are free to trust the author of your story. And you're free to hope in what you cannot even see yet. You're free to hope in what you cannot even imagine yet. Listen, I don't know why I've gone through some of the family stuff I've gone through. I had a good family, good parents that loved each other. But I still have scars, just like you do, a limp. I still have these things. I don't know why I went through them. I know I've survived them. I know I'm here. And I know those things made me a piece of who I am. And I also know that good is at the end somehow. I trust him. He's a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. I trust him. And with all the unanswered questions in our various family dramas, the one question that we really want answered is answered. The one that really matters, and that God is working in all things for good for those who love him. And if that's true, and I'm going to submit today that it is, then we don't need to allow despair to get any root or foothold in our lives. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Stay where you're at. He says, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. You can be perplexed. You can be sad. You can be frustrated, flustered. You can be all of these things. You could even be tempted to be in despair. But you don't have to live there. That's when it becomes a sin. Temptation will come. Sadness will find us. When sad things happen, they're sad. When bad things occur, they're bad. Right? We're allowed to be perplexed, but not driven to despair. Again, some of us today are locked in this place called Doubting Castle. This place, this palace, where God isn't even God. He's absent. He doesn't care. And hope? That's just an open wound. It's not something you want to talk about. And when God seems far, what we'll tend to do is something that's very traditional and historic. We see it in the Bible. We will make golden calves. We will make ourselves idols. And when we make an idol, we take the hope that is to be anchored in the land of redemption and God and the king of the cosmos. We take the hope that is to be anchored in him and we move it to something here. Horizontally. A thing. A place. A person. And we hope here on shifting sand. This is what it says in Exodus 32. Go ahead. If you have a Bible, you can flip there. See if you can beat me. Exodus 32, verse 1. We're just going to read one verse. He says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is fascinating. Now, in a few months, we're going to take a deep dive on this, just like Charlie said. But I want to point out a couple things today. It only took a delay, not even a denial that Moses, just a delay 
And it got everybody pitching in their earrings and their necklaces and their gold teeth and their favorite gold coins that grandpa left them to melt down and make a golden calf out of it, right? That's all it took was just a little bit of time. And this was what's fascinating about this passage. That's, that's with them camped out at the foot of a mountain full of smoke and thunder and lightning and fire. And Moses has only been gone for not even 40 days, right? That's what's going on. And at that point, with everything on fire and everything with thunder and lightning and this grumbling voice that they can't even bear to hear, they say to themselves, well, I guess he's not coming back. I guess this isn't working. We need a real savior. How about a cow? How about a cow? And as a young Christian, I would read this and go, what a bunch of morons. A cow? That's what they come up with? Do they not know how to make anything else with gold? Is that like the only thing they know how to do with gold? A cow? Here's the thing. We're no different. That's the second point. We're no different. Our cows look different. They're just as stupid, though. They're just as moronic. Sometimes we can sound just like them. We do not know what has become of our rescuer. When our life doesn't turn out like we thought it was and our family is messier than we had hoped it would be, we too can say, where did my Savior go? Why hasn't he come back? A little tired of waiting on him. And so we too will create saviors, our golden cows. They just look like work or entertainment or gaming, or adventure, or travel, or vacations, or whatever else we can use to distract ourselves from the fact that our families are as they are. Hope just stops being something for the future, and it's something that we relocate to the world today. And when you do that, idols will line up to lie to you, to tell you that they will get the job done. Listen, there's so much for us to groan inwardly about, right? I mean, if you take a deep audit on your family, you don't have to get very far. There's a lot to cause us to groan inwardly, even in a room this size. I know of countless tragedies. Countless tragedies. It'd fill a book. And this we know. We are too weak to manufacture hope on our own. You cannot do it. In fact, God says you cannot. Hope is a gift. Trust is a gift. Faith is a gift. Something that God gives us because he loves us. Because he loves us. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts, takes our groans, and matches it with a perfect petition. And he gives us hope. Whenever you have hope over something that's tragic, you trust God when people around you aren't trusting God. You have faith when it's difficult to have faith. You weren't that good. God's just been that sweet. The appropriate response to deep, just robust faith and trust is worship, that God is as good as he is, that he would visit us with this level of faith. And by the way, Jesus loves it when we carry our hopeless despair to him and ask him to fix it. He loves it. He loves it when we take our mess full of its jagged edges, nothing fixed, it all needs to be redeemed. We carry it and we give it to him and we just beg him, could you please fix this? This formula won't balance. Will you balance it for me? Will you redeem this? You know he loves to do that. He's not tolerating you. It glorifies him. It's a glory to him when we trust him with what is broken. It's a glory. God loves it. When you take what looks irreversibly messy and he rearranges it for good, he loves it. And that's because his gospel story is one where he reverses what is broken into its original intent. That's part of the gospel story, right? 
It's his glory to take shattered hopes and breathe purpose into it, to take what is sick and to make it healthy, to take what is broken and to see it fixed. This is what we see in the life of Jesus, not even the death of Jesus, but even just the life of Jesus. Watch him. Watch him in the Gospels as he darts from place to place, as he shifts from people to people. He is always like a magnet. He slips into the orbit of what looks most dysfunctional in that moment, what looks most broken, what looks furthest from the glory of God. He slips right in. He'd look at it and he would reverse it. This is what a miracle was. That's what miracles did. On top of a test that he is who he says he is, He's taking broken things and restoring it to the original intent. I think we have this view of miracles as moments where what should be is undone. Like lepers should be leprous, but now they're not because Jesus, right? Or hungry people should be hungry, but now they're not because Jesus. Or cripples are crippled because they should be crippled. But miracles don't reverse what ought to be. They bring to bear what was always meant to be. Lepers were meant to be included. Cripples were meant to jump and leap. Hunger was never meant to win. That was the original intent. Miracles are receipts that God is very good and very kind and very thoughtful and very excited to fix what looks like it is irreversibly broken. And the gospel miracle, like all miracles, the gospel is a miracle. It reverses yet another thing, the trajectory of death and chaos and decay. It takes it and it puts it as it should be. Now, I agree with John Bunyan. I have a key in my heart and it is called promise. That's part of the miracle of the gospel. And today, if we take this gospel miracle of what God has done through a bloody cross and an empty tomb, we can rest. We can rest. That God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And the hope that we invest in him for what he is bringing us to is true and it is waiting. And it will not default. Listen, today our families were meant to be better than they are. They were meant to be better. That's why we started a series like this. And the gospel miracle helps us not lose hope. Just remind yourself of the bloody cross and the empty tomb. Nothing looked more dysfunctional than that. He invested himself in that mess. That's the biggest mess in, in the history of creation. And he was highly thoughtful, highly active, highly attentive. And when God is this thoughtful and this attentive, it allows you and me to take the artillery of the enemy and fire it right back at him, right? This is what I mean by that. I don't know if you've ever, if you've been to St. Augustine, Florida, we, we love that city. Me and my family do. It means a lot to us. And I remember the first time I went there, we were fascinated with the fort. That's when you pay all the money to do all the tourist stuff. And then the other times you go, you're like, nah, I've already done that. You're right. And you spend your money on food instead. But the first time we spent our money on the tourist stuff, went to the big fort right there on the water. And I noticed that the walls looked a little funny. They had this like weird looking asphalt concrete-ish look. And it's because they're made of shell, a coquina shell. I think I said that right. Coquina shell. And what would happen is, is when some, there was some battle out there, and it, I'm sure it was the Spanish fighting somebody or somebody fighting the Spanish. The Spanish were always in the middle of all that. But someone was firing cannonballs at the fort. And when the cannonballs hit the fort, it was almost like a catcher's glove catching a ball. It wouldn't break or splinter the walls to the fort. It would just kind of absorb it 
and then it would plop the, the cannonball out down at the foot of the fort. And then some dudes would, would run out of the fort and run around, grab the cannonballs. I don't know how heavy they were. It sounds a little, I'm skeptical. But maybe one or two or three of them would grab the cannonball, shuttle it back up there, put it in their own cannons, fire it back at the ships, and they were sinking ships with their own cannonballs. How do you like that? And that's all I remember about the fort. But this is, but the whole time I'm thinking, man, there is, there is something to being sunk, right? I mean, if you're on a ship and you got sunk, I mean, there's that. But when you're sunk with your own cannonball, that's just, that's just awesome, right? There are ships out there on the bottom of the, of, of the bay or whatever it is that were sunk with their own cannonballs. Listen, the trouble from your family experience the troubles that you're experiencing now, the mess and the dysfunction that you're having with parents, siblings, wife, husband, kids, those can become cannonballs fired right back at the enemy that is hoping for your destruction. Whenever you celebrate that God is at work for those who love him and do good in all things, when you celebrate that, it mocks despair. Whenever you consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a mockery of hopelessness. Whenever we rejoice in the midst of our sufferings that God is good and he is present and he is thoughtful, we are firing cannonballs right back at the enemy. In these moments, in these moments, we destroy the giant of despair, the false testimony that God is not to be trusted, he is not to be hoped in because he is not here. We fire that back. Because here's the truth. Maybe your child does not become a Christian. Maybe he or she does not. Maybe intimacy will always be a struggle in your marriage for whatever reason. Maybe parents, maybe you could forgive them, but you can't reconcile with them. Right? That's a different sermon. Maybe the messes that you carried in here, maybe they don't really go away that much. They're dark clouds that just kind of follow you. But when you declare that God is good and thoughtful, as he expressed in the cross and the tomb, you mock despair and hopelessness. Even in the suffering and in the trouble, you can take joy. You can take joy. This is what David says in Psalm 42. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Listen, I truly believe that many of us are still locked in this doubting castle when you have the key to get out in your heart the whole time. The promises of God. Trusting, hoping, believing. And listen, if hope does not come easy for you, rush to God. Place your need at his feet and petition him until hope comes. As if your life depended on it. As if your sanity depended on it. Petition him. Ask God, beg God for hope, for faith, to trust that he is who he says he is. Ask for the gift of faith to rest in a better future. I'm just going to drill us down to a quick application and then we'll move on. But I want you to just consider, where do you look at your family and feel the most weak? You've grown inwardly, but you can't even really put a prayer together. Don't even know what to pray for, really be honest with you. What's furthest from what it should be? Or, or where can you just use a miracle? Where is that for you? I think there's, 
two big postures you can take. One is to lament. And just to be honest with God. Call it what it is. I don't see you. I'm struggling. Feel like you're ripping me off. I'd hoped out for better. (laughs) You're just not here. I don't hear you. I don't see you. I'm locked in a dungeon. Pretty upset about it. And then pivot towards trust. And like David says, hope in God for I shall again praise him. Hope in God. Recite what you know to be true. That God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. And listen, there's areas for us to repent when it comes to this as well. Because we can build golden calves, right? We grow tired of waiting, so we build something that takes the pain away. Work, distractions. Maybe you don't hate God, but you refuse to believe that he's good, so you're going to look for good in other places. Right? It's called an idol. I think we can also maybe consider repenting for using despair as a home, as an identity, letting it do more than just tempt you, but buying into it. The whispers are real, that's for sure. Choosing to believe God is not who he says he is, that requires repentance. That requires repentance. And maybe a point of application whenever you're doing life on life tightly with others in your missional community or in your DNA group or just your friends or your family, can you help those relationships that you're in, the ones that are in the middle of a mess, can you help them see the good of God? Because, pro tip, they can't see it. Everything they can see is broken. I've had a couple boogers over the last couple years where I was in total despair. And I would have people around me say, listen, God is good. And he's preparing this for you. And, it's good. and I, I just couldn't hear it. I don't, I don't know if it's just that I just don't believe you or I'm not about that right now. But I just couldn't see it. Sometimes the, the most beautiful thing you can do to love is to listen to what their issue is and then just repeatedly help them see the good of God, what God is pulling us towards. It's just basic gospel fluency. And then let's remember, we live in a city full of despair over family. Right now, nine out of ten people, approximately, are home. They're not watching anything online. They're not in an expression of any flavor or shape or denomination. They're at home. And whenever they have messes and dysfunction in their family, they just think that's just the way it is. They've quit having hope. They don't see purpose. There's no place for good to sprout in that. For them, God is blind. God is absent. He doesn't exist. He's a crutch. He's short-armed. He's slow. He's old. He doesn't redeem. He's whatever. We're missionaries. This is the city that we love. This is the city that we love. We live in a city full of golden calves. God is not one to be waited on, not by any means. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. For the hope. Why? Because you're going through the same stuff a lot of them are going through, but you look different. You're having miscarriages just like they're having miscarriages, but you sound differently. Your marriage has struggles like theirs does, but you, you look different. That's why. You've got to give the reason. Ask them questions. The people that you love that are far from Jesus, ask them questions. What do you hope in? Where is your hope? What is hope? Right? And listen, if you are here or you were watching online right now and you would consider yourself someone who is far from Christ. 
you consider yourself somebody who skeptically or in, in a, some sort of a search, looking to learn more about Jesus. Paul says something in 1 Corinthians that I think is going to apply to what we're talking about today. He says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of people most to be pitied, right? Now he's having this little bit of an argument with the church right there because they're saying that maybe Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And he's like, well, listen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and we don't rise from the dead because we don't rise from the dead because Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then we're in, we're in a jam. We're in a jam, then death is it. That's all we've got. But one thing that we can pull out of that is it is a pitiful life that anchors its hope in this world. That's a pitiful life. That's a hard life. I'm sure you know that much. Or you wouldn't have listened this far. Hope is only as helpful as the object we place that hope in. It's only. David, when he bottomed out, he says, hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So maybe if this is you, I think we could both agree that Doubting Castle has been your home and hope has been just an open wound. And I would just submit that you ask God to give you a residing faith and trust in him. Ask him to change your heart. It's a simple prayer. Again, the Holy Spirit intercedes, knowing these inward groans, knowing that we don't even know how to pray a lot of times. Ask God to give you the faith. God, I don't know that I totally believe you, but I, I kind of believe you. Give me the faith to believe you more. Well, I have a little bit of hope, but it's in the wrong thing. Give me hope in you. Pray that. He will do it. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this out with communion here. In fact, if someone can someone go and get the little dish of communion supply? I, we always, I always do this everywhere. I'm sorry, my bad. If you did not grab a communion cup, those little rip and sip cups on the way in, we'll toss one to you. If you're a Christian and you don't belong to Legacy, we're totally excited about you taking communion with us. If you're not sure you're a Christian, you don't think you're a Christian, don't worry about this moment. No one's even looking at you. No one's judging you. I just consider that you take Christ instead of this of this, this little memorial that we're about to do. It's not a supernatural thing, but it does have, it is sacred to us. Hey, Jordan, I'm going to need one too. If you throw it to me, I'll catch it. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> and what I want to do is I want to leave this moment before we take communion with John Bunyan's last words. This is the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He had, this, he had this moment right before he breathed his last breath and shut his eyes for the last time. His dead death, or his, yeah, his deathbed statement was this to those in the room. He says, do not cry for me, for I go to see the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will, no doubt, through the mediation of his Son, receive me, though a sinner, where I hope we finally shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy. World without end. Amen. And then he dies. And there he is today, right? He waits in this land of forevermore, this land of redemption that does not disappoint. In fact, there's no, no such thing as disappointment anymore, right? Because everything he had hoped in is now in hand. It's not something that he has never tasted and has to trust is there, it's in hand. Where family is reborn, 
family is reclaimed for eternity. Until then, we celebrate. We celebrate what God has done through communion. And so I'm going to pray for you as we take this together. Father, we thank you for this moment. This is a moment of celebration as much as it's a, a moment of remembrance. For your body was broken. The freedom we have to hope and a God who never fails came at a cost. It came at a cost. The blood on the cross was real. The body that was pulled down was dead. And so as we take the bread today, we do so in remembrance of the price, the extent of how much you loved us. So we take this in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, when we take the juice, we do so just as a declaration that you are a good God that was quick and thoughtful to move into our mess, even though it cost your blood. It would cost your blood to be knee-deep in our family tragedies. For your path to us was to redeem a new family. And so blood had to be spilled to cover our sins that we would be adopted in. So as we take this juice, we do so in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the juice. And Father, as we move from this part of the service to the next part of the service, where we just continue to worship you. Father, we just ask that you would highlight in our lives where the golden calves are because our lives are painful. There is pain in our lives. Our families aren't what we'd hoped for. There's trauma, there's tragedy, there's tension, there's everything. And it, I, I, I can distract myself. We can all distract ourselves. But Father, I also want you to shine a light on where we live in despair, where we feel comfortable calling you a liar, where we feel comfortable saying that you are loving but not to us, that you're a promise maker but you don't keep all of your promises. That is, that is the sin, Father, that I pray that you would root out in all of our lives, that we would walk every step knowing that you keep your promises and that in all things you work together in us for good, in all things, in all things. Lord, that that would be our place of repentance today. And Father, I pray that you change hearts today, hearts of stone that are trying to hope, want to hope, and they just, they don't. That you would take the heart of stone out and replace it with a heart of flesh, that they would feel and respond and be drawn. Lord, we love you, and you are a miracle worker. Your gospel is a miracle Every new life is a miracle. When a marriage is able to walk in light of your gospel, that's a miracle. When we raise our kids under the admonition of the Lord, that's a miracle. Father, you are very good to us by taking what we have and redeeming it to what it should be. And so we thank you and we worship you and we love you. Amen.